I was reminded this week uh, of what it was like as a teenager. Uh, I took one of my sons to the doctor's office, and we were getting a checkup, and he, uh, the doctor pulled out a laptop, and he was mapping out the growth trajectory uh, of, of my son. And we were looking at his height and at his weight and his growth, and it took me back to uh, my teenage years when I was going through a growth spurt. I don't know if you ever went through this, but when I was going through a growth spurt, I went through just really difficult growing pains where my body would ache, my muscles would hurt, and I just, I just would like just lay in the bed in agony over what was happening with my body during that season. And I was reminded this week of two people who went through very intense growth pains. The first is Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis was a star center for the University of Kentucky basketball team. A guy from Chicago who was six foot three, and over the course of 18 months, he grew eight inches. Eight inches in 18 months. I mean, can you imagine? His mama was like, I'm always buying you new clothes. I just bought you this. What's happening? The second person, when I was thinking about growing pains, is our executive pastor, Rick Swing. Did you know that between his eighth grade year and his ninth grade year, in 12 months, he grew 12 inches? <laughs> He's, I love hearing him tell the story. He says, I, Kenneth, I was literally laying in bed and my mom was just holding my arm because she could hear me groaning in pain. As his body is elongating, as he went from four foot to 11 to five foot 11 in a one year span, just this growth. Well, you see, when things grow, typically there's pain that comes with it. Whether it's in your business, as your business grows, there are growing pains that you have to work through. It's a city that's growing, and you've got these growing pains of a city. In our bodies, when we grow, there's these growing pains. But it's also true within the local church. When we get to Acts chapter 6, we see the church growing at such a rapid rate that it leads to growing pains. And what we're going to see this morning is how these growing pains of the early church led to an advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family through the book of Acts. Uh, If you're new to our church or if you're new to the Bible, man, we're so glad you're here Uh, If you're a guest, we have a gift we want to give to you at the close of the service. Stop by the Welcome Center on your way out. And we have a gift we'd love to give to you to say thank you for worshiping with us. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. If you don't know where to go, you can go to the table of contents in the very front of your Bible. You'll see that the Bible is broken into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. It's the fifth book. Uh, You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They lay out the life and ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Well, now we get to the book of Acts. This is where the early church is taking root, and we see the momentum taking place as people are coming to faith in Christ, and the early church is being established. We're all the way up, all the way to Acts chapter 6. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to take some time to slow down a little bit. We're going to do a sermon series, a little mini-series called Treasure Map. 
I want us to take some time to look at Acts chapter 7 and see the story of the Old Testament and how Stephen, as he is preaching before the Sanhedrin, the first martyr of the faith, to see what he does in this sermon and how he takes the Old Testament and uses it to point to Christ. And so next week, we're going to stay in the book of Acts, but we're going to take some time to look at the treasure map of the Old Testament and how it's driving us to discover Christ in Old Testament scriptures. Up to this point in Acts chapter 6, we saw in Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. We see tongues of fire falling upon the people of God. We see Simon Peter stand up, preach the gospel, and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Simon Peter and John are headed into the temple, and there's a lame beggar sitting at the temple gate. And as he's there, he's looking for handouts. He's looking for money. And Simon Peter looks at him and says, Silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And immediately the man gets up. He starts leaping and jumping and praising God. His body has experienced a physical healing. And we see later there is an even greater healing that takes place. Because as Peter and John go into the temple with this man who's been healed, this lame beggar who's now been transformed, thousands of people gather to see this this, uh, miracle that has just taken place. And they preach the gospel and thousands of more people come to faith in Christ. Persecution begins as the Sanhedrin tells them to stop preaching Jesus. Two apostles, Peter and John, they're arrested, Acts 4. They then stand up and say, listen, we can't help but declare who Jesus is. We can't help stop telling people about who he is, what he's done. He's risen from the dead. Jesus defeated death. There's this hope of the gospel. The church then gathers to pray, and the place where they're gathering to pray begins to shake and move. We see just this movement of the Spirit as God is working in and amongst these apostles. We then see the Holy Spirit move in a very unique way where Ananias and Sapphira, two church members, a husband and wife, they lie about their financial giving to the church and they drop dead. A very significant moment of church discipline and fear falls upon the church. We then see even greater persecution now as the Sanhedrin arrests the apostles again. They go into jail and they stand to preach the gospel. Gamaliel, this leader with a Pharisee, who he shepherds the Sanhedrin and says, Guys, let's not persecute these apostles. Because if these guys are of men, if this is just a man-centered movement, this thing's going to go away. This revolution will stop. But if this thing is of God, there's no way you can stop it. Well, they flog the apostles and tell them to stop preaching. And they're like, that ain't happening. They keep meeting. They keep preaching. But then there's some growing pains that happen in Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. 
The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. As the church in Jerusalem is continually growing at such a rapid rate, there's both blessings and challenges. The gospel is going forth. People's lives are being changed by the gospel. Jesus is changing people's hearts and lives. But some of the challenges that are taking place is there's starting to become some contention that's brewing within the early church. We see it here in Acts 6. A complaint arises within the church that some Greek-oriented widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles, they have to address the situation. Before this conflict advances to become divisive, they have to address these issues. So I want you to notice this morning in the text how the apostles, how they led through the conflict, and how the mission of the church continued to advance. The first thing I want you to see in the text is this, is the problem of the church's rapid growth. The text tells us, verse 1, that the church is increasing in number. There's an unprecedented growth taking place in the church as thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. The conversion growth of what's happening in Jerusalem is stunning. We see both men and women, chapter 5, verse 14, are coming to faith in Christ. They're being born again. They're turning from sin and trusting in Jesus by faith. They're hearing the good news that Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life that they couldn't live. That Jesus died the death that they deserved at the cross. That he was buried, but he rose again on the third day, offering eternal life to all who trust in him. This gospel is transforming people's lives. They're blown away by this good news, and they're trusting in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Some scholars estimate that the church now is up to about 20,000 believers in Jerusalem. Amazing growth. With this growth comes some growth pains. And what we see here is in this rapid growth, there's some drama that breaks out in the church. And this drama is centered around ethnic discrimination, right? The church's Meals on Wheels ministry appears to be playing favorites. Okay, now drama is never fun to deal with, especially within the church. It strains relationships. It's exhausting. It can bring a negative witness to the church. But as we see, drama is nothing new within the church. It it happened there at the very beginning 2,000 years ago. So what's the drama that's happening? Well, you have these Hellenistic Jews who are complaining that their widows are not getting food while the Hebraic Jews are feasting. Okay, so what's going on here? The Hellenistic Jews are Jews who have a Greek orientation. They speak Greek. The Bible that they read, the Old Testament, is Greek. It's the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they've embraced Greek culture. Now, the, the Hebraic Jews, they, they speak the original language. They're, they're people of the Hebrew. They're, we're the people of the patriarchs. This is our land, okay? These are nationalists. They're like, hey, this is who we are. We are the true-blooded Israelites. You guys are not. So we have two groups that don't like each other. Now, this is nothing new. Even before they're beginning to put their faith in Jesus, these two groups, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, they didn't like each other. They would butt heads. But now they're coming to faith in Christ, but they're bringing with them this ethnic discrimination, this this racial tension that's even taking place between these two groups in which they do not like each other. 
Well, sadly, this is now taking root here in the early church because we see when pride and spiritual immaturity shake hands, the results can be catastrophic. This is why the Apostle Paul, he was continually banging the drum of unity within the diversity of the local church. He told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. He told the Galatian church, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, he told the church at Colossae, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You see, as followers of Jesus, there is no caste system. There aren't different tiers in which some people are more loved by God than others. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You see, for all races and ethnicities, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is equality before the cross of Christ. There's not a sense in which one group or one person is more loved or more important than another. In the kingdom, the ground is level. We're all in this together. And there's no one who has a hierarchy of importance. Here we see the apostles. We see this division within the church based upon skin tone, maybe, but more upon culture. Greeks versus Jews. And so now the apostles are like, listen, we can't let this divert us from the mission. We've got to stay focused on the task. You see, Jesus prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer. What does he pray? Father, I pray that those who believe this message, that they would be one. You see, Jesus prayed that the church would be unified. In fact, Jesus died so that you could be one with God. You see, you and I, outside of Christ, when we were in our sin, we were separated from God relationally. We were far from him, but through the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. You've been made one with God through Jesus. That through his substitutionary death on the cross, he has made a way for you not to be separated from God, to be united to him as one. And the cross not only accomplished you to have unity with God, but also unity with neighbor. The cross purchased the way for you and I to get together as one, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yesterday or last night, I was at the gas station and uh, got gas in the car. I got the kids and everybody in the car and the battery dies. And so I'm like, ah, here we go. So I pop the hood and I'm thinking through things and I see a guy over off to the side of the gas tank and I walked up and said, hey man, um, my battery's not working. Would you mind coming and helping me get a jump? And he said, man, I would love to. He comes over, drives up, parks right there. And so I get the cables out. I get them all connected. And, and y'all, I, I don't just preach. You know that? Okay. So you know, I, I've got a diversity of talents. I can put red on red and black on black. I can pump my own gas. Anyway, so I talk to, we start talking with this guy. And I said, hey man, so where are you from? And he goes, well, I'm from Orlando. And I was like, oh, man, that's great. Man, so, so I don't show, I'm, I'm Kenneth and uh, Bruce, and I'm, I'm a pastor. His eyes lit up. And he goes, I'm a pastor. And he says, I'm from Columbia. And I said, well, get out of here. 
I said, we just hired a Colombian to be on our staff to reach Hispanics with the gospel. And he goes, really? Y'all, one day I'm going to write a book on the sovereignty of God called It's All Rigged. <laughs> so I, I, I give him Pipe's number and they're going to connect from there. And as I'm talking with this Colombian brother, all of a sudden, like, we have this, this connection. We have nothing in common but Jesus. And he binds us together. That's what's happening here. Is there's division happening in the early church? And the apostles are like, we can't let this happen. We're not going to let division take place. You see, the poorest believer has just as much access to God as the wealthiest. A seasoned saint who's been following Jesus for decades is just as loved as a new believer who's just left the drug culture. That new believer, they both have equal access to God. You see, that blue-collar factory worker in Cuba who loves Jesus is just as important as a white-collar salesman in Japan who loves Jesus. We are all united as one in Christ Jesus. And so as the church is growing, as these problems arise, the apostles have to do something. They have to stay focused on their primary task, which is number two, the priority of the preaching of the Word of God. With this new problem, the disciples call a business meeting. They call a huddle. Everybody come in here. Come on. Verse 2. They tell them, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. Now, the apostles are not minimizing caring for widows. They saw Jesus care for widows. They heard him preach sermons on caring for widows. They saw him uh, affirm a poor widow who's giving two copper coins at the temple in her offering. And Jesus says she's giving more than everybody else. Even when you go throughout the Old Testament, you see God's heart for widows. We see in Psalm 68, Father to the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God has a heart for women whose husbands have died or have abandoned them. Exodus 22, the Lord says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. God's righteous anger burns against those who mistreat or harm the vulnerable and especially the weak widows and orphans. You see, caring for orphans and widows in their distress is valuable in the eyes of God. He cares for women who are in danger and at risk. And if God cares for widows and orphans, so too must we. In the early church, they saw the need. They saw these widows who didn't have financial provision. They didn't have a government infrastructure that would provide food for them. And so the early church begins providing food. They are, verse 1, a daily distribution. And yet simultaneously, as important as it is to care for widows and minister in homeless shelters and to set up food pantries, which we must, the apostles could not take their eyes off of what was the most important part of the church's ministry, the preaching of the word of God. You see, compassion ministry overflows from the ever-flowing fountain of God's word. The apostles, they're not acting like they're better than everybody else. They're setting forth a biblical priority. 
They're saying, listen, we can't neglect the preaching of the word of God. We've got to have this conviction in which for the early church and every church that's going to come afterwards, the word of God has to take center stage. We have to make sure that we do not neglect the preaching of the word. And we must care for widows and we must care for orphans. Yes and amen, but we cannot neglect the preaching of the word. I had a conversation this morning with a lady in our church who's a widow. And she was telling me this week how her car battery died. There you go. And, and, and she was in a situation in which she doesn't know how to get it taken care of. So she called up a man in our church and he went and got all of it taken care of for her. I love it. Yes and amen. She said, Kenneth, I feel so loved and protected by our church. And that was one of hundreds of men that she could have called in that, in that moment where a church is going to come and say, we're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure you have everything that you need. That's what we do as a church. And that's what's happening here in the early church. They're taking care of them. They're loving them. But the apostles are like, listen, we can't neglect this. We have to keep the word of God front and center. It's like you're dropping a huge boulder in the middle of a small room saying, we're not going to move around this. The word of God is going to be central. It's going to have the priority of the local church because God speaks directly to his people through his word. If the word of God is not preached, then people will not be saved. If the word of God is not preached, then discipleship begins to lack. If the word of God is not preached, then sin runs rampant in the church. If the word of God is not preached, then people will not be strengthened in the faith. If the word of God is not preached, then people will believe things that are not true. If the word of God is not preached, then God is robbed of glory. The apostles are setting the preaching of the word as the essential priority of the church. Think about it. Heaven and hell hang in the balance on whether or not someone believes the truth. If someone believes something that is not true, they are not united to God by faith. And when eternity comes upon them, they will be separated from him forever. This is why truth matters. And the apostles know that if we neglect the preaching of the word, false teaching will creep into the church. People will abandon what is true. And though it may become a very good nonprofit organization that meets the needs of those who are weak and hungry, people will not be saved. So the apostles are saying, listen, yes, we're going to care for widows. We're not not going to neglect you, but we want to make sure that we're letting the word of God take center stage. This is the priority for us as a church. And y'all, the continent of Europe is saturated with empty cathedrals that stopped preaching the word of God. And we live in a nation right now in which more and more churches are going to worshiptainment teaching things to scratch people's ears to make them feel good. We can't do that. We've got to be a church that lets the Bible set the priority for the church. And here we see the apostles say, we can't neglect the preaching of the word. As important as it is to care for widows, yes and amen. As important as it is to care for orphans, yes and amen. We can't neglect the priority of the preaching of the word of God. It has to take center stage. In faith family, if there ever comes a point in which I or anyone else stands here and begins preaching something other than Scripture, you have every right to call us out for it. 
In fact, you're responsible to do so. We are going to be a people of the book. It's the word of God that changes lives. And we want to continually bring the word of God to bear upon us so that we can be transformed, that God can make us more and more like Christ. I was thinking about this earlier with the 815 service. Is It's amazing to me. Romans 829, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Which in essence means this. It is God's mission to make you like Jesus. He is going to do whatever it takes to conform you into the image of Christ. He is going to change you. And I've told you the story before that before I came to know Jesus, um, I, I was very arrogant and I was a very prideful person. And I listened to, listened to a lot of messed up music, uh, a lot of uh, rap that was really hardcore. And, and I remember driving down the street one day with my buddy who was a follower of Christ. I'm a new believer. We're students at the University of Kentucky. As we're driving, I, I, I put the CD in, and all of a sudden, it's a CD, guys. It's a small round disc. <laughs> it has music on it. And so I, I pop it in, and all of a sudden, I start bobbing my head, and I'm like, mm, that's it right there. And I start rapping all the lyrics to it. And my buddy looks at me, and he's like, what are you doing? And he hits eject, grabs the CD, and throws it out the window. I was like, bro, what are you doing? And he said, he said this. He said, Kenneth, you're a follower of Jesus now. And we don't listen to that anymore. Now, at first, I was mad. But then here's what happened. The Holy Spirit convicted me. He's like, Kenneth, he's right. You belong to Jesus now. What was happening in that moment? The Holy Spirit was conforming me into the image of Jesus. He was cutting off branches in me that are not bearing fruit. He's getting rid of it so that fruit can come forth. And that's what the Spirit is continually doing. He's continually changing you. To use Simon Peter's words from his first epistle, in which he's, he calls it a, a fiery, um, when you face trials of many kinds, there's this, this, uh, this fiery, uh, come on, what is it? Fiery ordeal. Thank you so much. Fiery ordeal. I need help, y'all. And as you go through the fiery process, like a smelting, like a goldsmith, you take the gold through the fire. And the fire brings all the infirmities to the top. And the goldsmith wipes away all the dirt, all the muck, all the stuff that does not make it pure. And he goes through the process over and over again. He fires it again. And he, all the way until, and how does he know when it's finally ready? It's when the image of his face is reflected in the gold. God is continually taking you as a follower of Jesus through the fire. And what's rising to the top are things in your heart and life that don't look like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is wiping those away so that the reflection of Jesus is in your character. This is what God is doing through the preaching of the word. When the word of God is brought to bear upon the people of God, the spirit of God begins to change people for the glory of God. You become a new creation. The word of God is brought to bear, and he is making a new kind of people. And the apostles are making sure that we cannot neglect the priority of the word. So now what are they going to do with this problem? Well, it leads to number three, the proposal of the apostles. Just as Jethro encouraged Moses in Exodus 18 to identify godly men who could help carry the burden of leadership and to serve the people, the apostles proposed to the church to raise up seven men to lead by serving the people. All right, the apostles invite the church, I love this, to identify seven men 
who can step in as servants. Now, what we see here, y'all, is congregationalism. When you go back to Matthew 16, when Jesus gave the keys to Peter, he was not giving him the keys to the authority of the church as if he was the first pope. He was giving the keys to the church. And so he calls, here we see the apostles applying that, saying, all right, church, you select from among you men, these servants who are going to care for these widows. And though the word deacon never shows up here in Acts 6, these seven men, they model a deacon ministry. They're, they're going to meet the physical needs of the church so that the apostles can stay focused on the task of verse 4 devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right, so what kind of person are they looking for? Well, I put this in your notes, the three characteristics of a servant leader. It's right there in the text. All right, three C words. The first is this, character. Character. We see there in the text, verse three, you're looking for a man of good reputation. This means he's a godly man. When the church would hear the person's name, they'd say, that's a good dude right there. That's a godly man. He honors the Lord with his words, with his thinking, with his life. Uh, When Paul gives instructions on the characteristics of a deacon in 1 Timothy 3, he gives them uh, the first one is a a man above reproach. Uh, That word above reproach, it means someone where there's not even an accusation that can be lobbed against them. If someone accused them of something, the church would laugh and be like, that's not true. We know his character. We've seen his life saying there's no way an accusation could stick. You see, a a, a man of character is a man who lives a life that is exemplary of the person of Christ. It's a godly man. So let me ask you a question, dads. If I were to ask your kids, who's the godliest man you know, would they say, my dad? Moms, if I asked your children, who's the godliest woman you know, would they say, my mom? What's happening here is the apostles are letting the church identify these leaders. The first thing they're looking for is character. In the text, it's a godly man that applies to all of us. Are you a godly man? Are you a godly woman? Well, what does that look like? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, we see these characteristics laid out for us of what a deacon looks like, but it's a pretty normal list of what all believers should look like. Worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, blameless. He goes on to say, wives are worthy of respect, not slanders, but self-controlled, faithful in everything. May you and I be known, may we be marked as godly men and women who model the gospel, not to earn our salvation, but because we already possess it because of who Jesus already is in our hearts and lives. And because of what he's done, we are then compelled to follow after him. So the first is character. The second C word, Christ, is Christ. Verse three, they must be full of the spirit. Now someone who's full of the spirit is someone who loves Jesus. They submit and yield their lives completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They allow the Holy Spirit to control them. They're under the influence of the Spirit. Now, hear me on this. When you are full of the Spirit, it does not mean that you're perfect. It means that you're pursuing perfection. 
Okay, so being full of the Spirit means that when you sin, you feel conviction of your sin, like, ah, that did not look like Christ. And you repent, and then you go, hey, my bad, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. That, that thing I just said, that did not look like Christ. That's a mark that you're a son. That's a mark that you belong to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. This is Hebrews 12. God disciplines those he loves, and God will discipline you, and he will convict you of sin. Why? So that you'll have a righteous life. You'll look more like Jesus. That's a gift. We've said this, that guilt is grace when it leads you to Jesus. That we come to Christ and say, ah, Lord, I blew it again. And he's like, I know. And I still love you, and my grace is greater. My mercy is more. And I've already washed you and cleansed you through the blood of my son, but I'm going to bring you into a closer fellowship with me. So you take what's in the dark, you bring it into the light, you expose it, and he heals you with his gospel. This is what's happening. These are men who are full of the Spirit. They're they're, they're full of, of the work of God in their hearts and in their lives. They have the joy of Jesus. They love to have Christ as the center of their lives. So we see character, we see Christ. The third word we see is competence. We see verse three, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Now we know where wisdom begins. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not being smart, it's being wise. You can read situations and people You can lead and you can navigate. These apostles were men who knew how to shepherd through opinionated people. Those who are argumentative and difficult. People who sometimes you just want to roll your eyes and get frustrated. A man of wisdom can shepherd and lead through that. These servant leaders are men who could be humble and joyful, patient, loving people. They solve problems. They rebuke the prideful. They encourage the weak and they meet the needs. So this proposal the apostles bring, everybody loves it. The church is like, yes, great idea, let's do it. So they select seven men who meet these qualifications. The apostles, they lay hands on them, they pray over them, and it leads to number four, the progression of the word's reach. Through this proposal, the apostles are freed up to focus on preaching the word, and what happens from there, verse seven, the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, because of the disciples raising up servant leaders to care for the benevolence ministry, this speed bump of conflict actually led to an even greater kingdom advancement. It's like pouring nitrous oxide into a V12 engine. Okay, the church is now zooming. The faster they're growing, they're seeing, reaching more people for Jesus. The gospel's going forth and lives are being changed. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to do? As we sit here in 2022, we look at Acts chapter 6. What are you calling us to do as followers of Christ? As individual believers and as a church, it's this. It's your impact point. Serve the church with your spirit-empowered gifts for the kingdom's advancement. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, That when you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit gave you at least one spiritual gift, if not more. That there is a gift that every believer has. That when you trusted in Christ, whether it's at vacation Bible school as a six-year-old or sitting at your kitchen table as a 76-year-old. Whenever you put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes, lives inside of you permanently. 
He sealed you into the day of redemption, Ephesians 1. But he also has given you a gift, if not many gifts, to serve the church. And what's happening in Acts 6 is we see God raising up these servants who are serving the church. They're meeting the needs of people. And through their ministry, the gospel is going forth. And so as you think about what God has equipped you to do, how you can serve the needs of the church, you get to leverage what God has entrusted to you to see the kingdom advance through you putting the needs of others before yourself. It's interesting there in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives an illustration of what service looks like. And he uses the human body as an example. As some of us are like an ear, some of us are like an eye, some of us are like a nose. The eye doesn't say to the nose, I don't need you. The ear does not say to the, say to the foot, there's no need for you. No, all are important. You matter to the body of Christ. And God has gifted you with gifts to serve and build up the church. That we are a people, we don't play for the name on the back of the jerseys. People know us, so we're famous. No, 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 no. These gifts are given so that we can build up the church. You can serve the needs of those around you. And so as you think about your life, we are be those who serve. Why? For even the Son of Man does not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You and I are eager to serve because of him who groaned and suffered and bled and died and rose again and is seated in heaven and is soon returning to rescue you and to call you home to himself. That's the Savior we love. That's the Savior we follow. That's the Savior that we serve until the day he calls us home.